in this wonderful, magical land known as the early 1980s, there was this wonderful cartoon that started not long after I turned two. Uh, so I missed the beginning of it. I wasn't that into it at two. But I eventually came to appreciate this wonderful show called Transformers. You familiar with this? Let me educate you if you have no idea what I'm talking about. Silas, our Transformers cool? Since you're here. He doesn't care. He likes them. Oh, he forgot all of his stuff. There we go. He's focused. <laughs> he got told, hurry, is what happened. Uh, but Transformers are this fun cartoon about these robots, but they turn into vehicles, so they're like a jet or a truck or a tank or some sort of vehicle for a minute, and then all of a sudden they transform into these big robots who, uh, you know, there's good robots and the bad robots, and they all have to fight on Earth for some reason. I still don't quite understand that part, but they're here. And so this cartoon was fun. It was a lot of great times, but there were toys that came along for this show, and that was really where it was cool, because now you have this toy that is like a car but then all of a sudden you start flipping things and it becomes this robot. Now what's interesting is uh, I really wanted these toys. I thought they were super cool. They were a lot of fun to play with. Uh, but I didn't have very many of the cool ones. I got like the, the little ones that came in the McDonald's Happy Meals when we would go to McDonald's. Uh, I did get to send off for one one time. We had saved up our Kool-Aid packets when you could still mail in Kool-Aid packets and get some sort of prize out of their catalog. And I had saved up some Kool-Aid packets and uh, sent those in to get a little Optimus Prime. He's the big semi-truck, which is the coolest. He's like the leader. And so it was a little one. It had some die-cast pieces, but it was also plastic. Eventually, he got played with enough that when you tried to turn him into a truck, his arms were down on the side, and his arms would just kind of flop back open, and he'd just be laying on this undercarriage, which was not as cool. I eventually put a rubber band around so it would hold him together because I did play with his toy a lot. But then I became an adult, and Transformers have not really gone anywhere. There have been major motion pictures, cool movies, stuff like that. And I quickly found out why my parents never bought me a Transformer. Because I did not have the cool big ones, but my little brother, who came along 16 years after me, did. And when we would go back to visit my mom's house, some of those Transformers were in the house. And now Silas, who is here just a moment ago, or my nephews are like, let's play with the Transformers. And you know how you play with a Transformer? You bring the transformer to dad and say, can you change this? And I say, I think you need a master's degree to change this. This is a Rubik's Cube that makes me want to do a Rubik's Cube. Like this puzzle is so hard to figure out. You got all these little moving parts and I'm really not sure if that, does that look like a leg? Is this an arm? Like you're trying to put these things back and forth and guess what happens? I finally solve the puzzle, I hand it back and they play with her for about three seconds, and then they hand it back to you and say, can you transform it back? <laughs> the fun of a transformer is not playing with it as a truck or a tank. The fun of a transformer is not playing with it as a robot. The fun of a transformer is transforming it, which kids can't do because they're too complicated, and mom and dad have to do it. That's why a few years ago when Silas did get transformers, uh, he got a couple. But man, look at this guy. You just grab this little piece right here. It's a jet. If you can't see, it's a jet. Pretty cool, huh? And then you grab the top of the jet, and you flip this over, and all of a sudden it's transformed. Like, somebody finally figured out parents are not going to buy these toys unless they can actually transform them in a split second. And so, like, hey, you know what? I am happy to help you transform your plane. In fact, I'll let you do it yourself. Uh, or the little semi. Like I said, Optimus Prime. I had one of these. It was more complicated than this one because this one, literally, I just push this little button down and twist it around, and looky there, robot. How much easier is that, right? 
I can do it one-handed, right? That was pretty cool right there. See, one-handed transformation is way cooler for mom and dad because I could spend hours trying to figure out how to do a transformer. But transformation, the way we're talking about it, the way we discuss transformation in here, I wish it was just that simple, right? I wish it was just like, hey, just, just got to turn this thing like this. Flip it around. That, that's it. That's it. I wish I could come in here and tell you that transformation is just that simple. All you have to do are these two easy steps, and transformation is possible, right? But we all know we've been around stuff that it's hard to change. The idea of change is difficult. And honestly, when it comes to change, I feel like sometimes where we get in the church is we get to this point where we kind of come to church hoping that we can just hand the transformer to somebody else and say, can you flip this around for me? Can you just teach me enough so that this is all fixed and better? Like, can you, like, this is hard work. I just want you to, like, do the switch and the thing and make me feel just like I've accomplished enough to feel good about it, right? Keep it simple. Offer me some options. Offer me some switching and make it simple. And I sometimes feel like when we come in here, it's hard work. And we're not sure if we're going to be able to do it. And so we just, give me the simple version. I don't, I don't want the big, complicated, long, drawn-out process that feels like a Rubik's Cube. I just want a simple switch that'll make me feel like I've accomplished something. Our passage this week from Core 52 is Romans 12. You all have heard me use Romans 12 a lot. I reference this, pas- this passage quite a bit because it's one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. And this is one where Paul writes, Do not... Be conformed to this world. Be the same. Don't act like everything else and everyone else. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed. We know that we're supposed to somehow be different than the world. We know that transformation is a part of what it means to follow But how we switch, what that looks like, what that actually means is tricky. A lot of times what we kind of think is it's a simple turnaround. I think this toy kind of works appropriately because if I just do one simple turnaround, then everything's transformed, right? And we've talked about this word in here a lot, which is repentance. This word that literally means changing direction from one way to the other. If I just change my mind and stop moving this direction and move this way, I have been transformed. My path is no longer here. My path is now here. That is transformation, and that makes me feel good. But the more I thought about it, there's a story that many of us are possibly familiar with. How many of you ever heard the story of Jonah and the whale? How many of you know how many verses that silly whale is actually talked about in the book of Jonah? If you said the word whale, the answer is zero. Okay, There's no whales in the book of Jonah that we know of. It doesn't ever say that word. If you talk about the big fish that comes along and swallows Jonah, how many verses is the fish discussed in the book of Jonah? Anybody know? Two. The answer is two. There's this whole big story, and we have made it about this moment where Jonah gets swallowed by a fish, and the fish literally gets two mentions the entire book. But the story of Jonah 
turning from this direction to this direction, and what's actually going on there in chapter 4, which we completely ignore most of the time because we're teaching to kids, and kids want to hear this fantastical story about a fish, right, is the part we stick to. And I think it's important for us for just a moment to take a look. So let me start and kind of preface the story. Jonah, it tells us, is a prophet. And the word of the Lord has come to Jonah, and he's supposed to deliver a message. Now, when the word of the Lord comes to a prophet in the Old Testament, typically what we're about to receive is a lot of the writings and the word that has come to that prophet. Jonah is very unique in the idea that we don't get the words, really, that came to Jonah. We get more of the story of Jonah. And it's very different and unique from all the other books of prophecy we have. And so the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and Jonah is told, go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. Tell them to change directions. And so the story is all about Jonah being told, hey, you need to go deliver this message to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. If you go back and read in the Old Testament, if you've ever done a reading plan, you go through and start marking all the conflicts and all the problems that the Jewish people had with Assyria, you're going to come up with a pretty decent list of reasons we don't like that place. This is not a country we get along with, and this is their capital, and this is their king, and this is like a really... We sometimes talk about how evil Nineveh was. But really, the reason Jonah wants to go there is not because he's scared to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go there because he hates Assyria and Nineveh. We're going to find that out a little bit more later, but in the midst of the story, Jonah takes off the other direction. He goes to Tarshish, and he starts on this boat, and he starts heading the other direction. And all of a sudden, some storms come up, and eventually the, the crew of the ship go, this is not a normal thing. Something's going on on more of a divine level here. Something's happening. I need someone to... Um, you know, cast some lots or tell us what's going on. Has somebody done something? Are you running from something? What's happening here? And Jonah's like, it's me. Throw me overboard. I'm the one running. And in this story of all this stuff playing out, they finally throw him overboard. They finally realize this is the, the culprit. This is what's going on. He's fessed up, and they toss him overboard, and all of a sudden the storm just chills out, right? One of those moments where everything calms down, and a large fish comes and swallows Jonah. There's the first one. Now, that's all in chapter 1. That's the whole beginning of this story. But chapter 2 is where we get this moment where Jonah's in the fish and he starts to pray. And he says things like this, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Out of the belly of Sheol, this word that is referring to the underworld, the, dead, the, the place of the dead, it's not necessarily just like hell as we see it in the culture. It was just a little different, but this kind of place of the dead, out of the depths of the death, really, you called me. I cried for help in distress, and you answered me. I needed something in my distress, and you were there for me. His words are kind of still focused on himself, right? The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. I called out in my distress. Everything seemed desperate. Everything seemed wrong. And yet I called out to you, and you heard me from the, the pits. You heard me from the depths of this place. And you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. That's pretty sweet stuff. 
And we, we often look at this passage and, and, and say, you know, this is all right. Jonah's kind of realizing God has rescued him. God has saved him. God has kept him from death and misery and destruction in this moment. And he continues on with this prayer. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. I'm thankful that you saved my life. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll go do. I realize now you saved me and I owe you a debt. I will go do what you want me to do, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Verse number two. We're done with the fish. Pretty big part of the story. Um, No, it's, it's God's rescue, right? It's important to the story, but it's not the emphasis of the story. This story is about this prophet whose account we're getting. And there's a whole big piece to this. We could study this for days. I, I, I learned a lot this week just looking at some videos and some stuff about Jonah. But the idea that this whole thing is kind of a satire because nothing goes the way you expect it to. It feels like the author is trying to set us up for one thing and everything kind of goes the opposite direction of what we expect. Because you'll know what you didn't notice in the midst of Jonah's whole prayer? What he never says once. Do you know what he never says? I'm sorry. Never once. He never once says, I'm sorry. He says, you rescued me. I'm thankful for that. I'll do whatever you want me to do. You saw me in my distress and you rescued me. Thank you for pulling me out of my brokenness. Thank you. Never once does he say, I'm sorry. But God tells this this fish, sorry, I said the W word, this fish to spit him up on land. And the story keeps going on because now Jonah is going to go to Nineveh. He's going to preach this message. We're told in chapter 3 that this is like a three-day journey across Nineveh. It's a pretty big place. It's going to take him a while to get through. But he's there on day one. He begins in the city going on a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's a powerful message, isn't it? That's it. That's the whole length of the message. God rescued me from a fish from the depths of the sea, from the storm, from all the brokenness, from my cries of despair. He brought me this place. I told him I would come here because he rescued me and saved me. Here's the half-hearted message I'll give you. You have 40 days to get it straight or you'll be overthrown. Super lame, right? <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm, uh, You guys are going to be able to tell my feelings about Jonah as we go through this story because he's not one of my favorite Bible characters. But I love this story because the way it all works out... He says, you'll be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. In fact, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from the throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and he published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Do you notice that right there? Who knows? Like the king is saying, all of us are going to put on sackcloth. All of us are going to humble ourselves. All of us are going to fast. We're all going to step into this place of humility and repent. 
Who knows? God may even relent. That's not a guarantee that he hears. Right? He's not declaring with great certainty this is all going to get better, but we're all going to take these steps regardless. Regardless of our outcome, this is the steps we're taking. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, turning, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and did not do it. It's good news, right? It's fantastic news. People hear the message, humble themselves, realize that even in the midst of a terrible message that was preached, like it was, it was I mean, I've preached some stinkers in my lifetime, but I don't think I've ever gotten that bad. I hope. He's like, you have 40 days or you'll be overthrown. You know what's interesting about that word overthrown? That there's kind of two ways it can be used in the ancient Hebrew that it's used there. It can be used to, in the sense I think Jonah meant it. That sense of like your city can be toppled and turned over and destroyed. But the other way that it can actually be used, that same term, that same phrase, I think the author used intentionally in the midst of writing this and helping us see what's going on here. Because again, this is a story meant to help us see these tough questions and wrestle with this transformation. The other terminology for that word overthrown, the other meaning, is transformed and changed. You have 40 days or you will be overthrown. Jonah, in his mind, is thinking you're going to be destroyed. God is going to give it to you, right? But God's plans are bigger and greater than that. You're going to be overthrown, overturned, turned over, and transformed. Humbled in a way that you care about something different than your ways and what you've been doing. No matter how long-lived this transformation was, we eventually see Assyria and and the Jews continue to battle. Like, it's not like this is an everlasting transformation that is just whatever. But in the midst of the story, there's someone you're thinking, this is a man of God who's got the word of God, and you're thinking he was delivered and saved, and here's this prayer where he never once says, I'm thank you. And yeah, he goes through with his promise, but he kind of does it half-heartedly. And the transformation that's taking place is in the people he sent the message to. And if you have any doubts about Jonah's transformation or whether it existed or not, just keep reading in chapter 4, the neglected chapter, the one we don't teach the kiddos. Right? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do, do, you do well to be angry? I want to back up for just a second because there's an important little phrase there if you don't notice. We've talked about this phrase before, this passage before. Jonah's not just using his own words to speak about God. He's using God's own words to speak about God. Words from a place we've discussed before, Exodus chapter 34. A gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Exodus 34, when God's saying, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jonah's saying, I know who you are. And I don't like it. Like, I know that you're merciful and gracious. I like it when that pertains to me and you're bringing me out of a fish. 
I don't like when that is given to my enemy because I'd rather sit back up on this hillside and watch you destroy him. In fact, that's actually what he continues on to do. He sits up on this hillside and God makes this vine grow up over him to kind of shield him and give him some time to think. But then a little worm comes along and eats the vine, it shrivels, and then the heat gets there and it's just miserable as Jonah sits on this hill overlooking Nineveh waiting for God to destroy it. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry enough to die. I'm mad about the plant. I'm mad about everything enough to just be done with this. I'm miserable and I don't like it. It's a pretty bold way to talk, I think. And the Lord said, yeah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You're worried about this plant. You didn't invest anything in it. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? It's interesting right here. You didn't invest anything in the plant. Should, you not worry about, should I not worry about Nineveh? He, he kind of changes. He's saying you didn't invest in the plant, and yet you're all angry about it. Shouldn't I care about Nineveh? Because I did invest in it. Like, I, those are my people. Like, I created humanity. Like, they're mine. 120,000 of them, and cattle, and animals, and livestock, and all these things. There's a place I care about. Should I not care about them? And you know, that's where the book kind of wraps up, on a question. Jonah's done. He's spoken his piece. He just wants to be done. And we don't ever get Jonah's response. And I think the writer leaves it this way on purpose because asking us the question, shouldn't this be something God cares about? The people of Nineveh were overthrown in terms of transformation. They were made new in that moment to say, we're going to humble ourselves and care about what God cares about, even if he doesn't rescue us. Jonah is saying, um, I appreciate that you're willing to rescue me, so I will do stuff for you but I'm really still mad about it because I don't really like the fact that you're going to forgive my enemies. Your forgiveness is good when it's for me. It is not good when it is for others that I dislike. Your goodness is good as long as it's rescuing me, but don't use it to rescue them. You see the brokenness in the midst of this? We often talk about the second chance Jonah got when we're teaching this story. But the real celebration is the second chance Nineveh got. And how Jonah wasted a second chance. He turned from Tarshish and went to Nineveh out of obligation. He made a promise and said, I don't want to get in trouble any more than I already am, and so I'll go do what you've asked me to do. But was he actually transformed? He changed directions, but transformation is something very different. Transformation is this moment where I start to care about God's heart and God's ways. Did you notice back here earlier what we said? We were looking at our memory verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to know what his will is, what his desires are, what his ways are. I want to know his character and I want it to be part of my character. Transformation is not about us trying to see how God's teaching might fit into our life to convenience us or to take us to where we want to go. Transformation is about us dying to ourselves, like we've been talking about for weeks now, living in the freedom of Christ like we talked about last week and realizing that freedom, that forgiveness, that same desire that God has for us is the same desire he has for all people and for that to be the joy of our heart. Not the thing we use to condemn people we don't like. That's not transformation. Radical transformation is change. You want radical transformation, look at the author of these words right here. It's easy for someone to write words. It's easy for a pastor to get up and say, we got to change. we got to be different. Paul, the man who's writing these yellow letters, was persecuting the church. He was standing by holding coats while they stoned believers, the first martyr for the kingdom. Paul is standing there holding the coats while he dies, looking on. And then he continues this little crusade to go wipe out the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus. And while he's on this little crusade to do that, one day he's on the road to Damascus and a blinding light shines and knocks him off his horse. And he's confronted with Jesus saying, why are you persecuting my church, my people? Why are you doing these things, right? That's why Paul writes words like this later on when he's talking about his own transformation. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go around and try to figure out the right answers here or there. I didn't do this to kind of sort this out. He goes, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I didn't go to the apostles and say, what do I got to do? Give me the easy steps. Give me the quick twist and turn that'll help me get a little better. He didn't look to consult or do those things. You know what he does? I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. It's like, okay, cool, he traveled. No. You know what he was doing? He was immersing himself in God's presence, in relationship with the one who would transform him. I've been persecuting you even though I thought I was following you. I was doing all these deeds because I thought this is what you wanted. I was defending my faith as a zealous Pharisee on the rise. I was trying to stomp out this rising kind of cult thing that I thought was spreading and ruining our faith. I was trying to do what I thought was best until the son came to me and knocked me off my horse in great power and said, no, this isn't my father's will. This isn't what God desires. And I saw the light, literally, and realized I needed to be changed. And to be changed, I didn't go seek everybody else's counsel to say, what's the simple step to do the next right thing? No, I am going to immerse myself in the presence of God to hear from Christ's voice to say, how can I be like you? How can I care for the things you care about? And Paul goes from being one of the most feared people in the church to one of the most consistently quoted people in the church. One of these writers who has written more of our New Testament than not 
someone whose words we continue to study to this day, even as they were letters to encourage the congregations of that day, because God transformed his life in a radical way that wasn't just about saying, yeah, I'll change directions. It was about saying, I care zealously and deeply about the things God cares about. And I will lay myself on the line and humble myself and throw myself out there in ways that matter for the sake of seeing your kingdom grow because it is more important than the kingdom I was trying to build that I thought was more important, my understanding and the way I thought it should be. I'm going to pour myself into this. He was being transformed in serious ways. See things like Proverbs chapter 8 that say, I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. He's not far away. We've talked about this. We've talked about the gift of the Holy Spirit, this idea of the power that has been gifted to us so that we can better follow and understand. We've discussed what the Spirit does in our life and how it can do that. We've talked about baptism being a death to self and a resurrection into new life. But what is that new life? What kind of shape is it going to take if we're not being transformed into the will of God, into the character of God, into the things he himself says he is, if we still don't like those for everybody, if we still don't like all the teachings and say, well, yeah, I know it says turn the other cheek, but I'd rather not. I I know it says this, but I mean, really, that that was Jesus. Of course, Jesus can do it. I mean, like, uh, but does he really expect any of us to be able to pull that off? If we're continuing to make excuses I hate to say it, but we're a lot like Jonah. We kind of want to change direction enough to get by to save ourselves from the deep, but not actually to carry forth the message and the good news and the hope of our God and our Savior. Psalm chapter 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift my hands. I am hungry and thirsty for you. I want your presence more than anything. Is that true? Because there's a difference between I want your heaven more than I want anything that might be the opposite of heaven. There's a difference between I want your blessings more than I want like, bad things to happen. And I think if I sin, bad things are going to happen and you're going to punish me for it. There's something more than righteousness at stake. It's not just about saying I want to be the good boy who does the right things. In fact, the Pharisees worked really hard at that. And it's interesting because Jesus brings Jonah up again while he's talking to them. Then some of the teachers of the law and proud religious law keepers said to Jesus, Teach me. Or teach me. Teacher, we would like to have you do something special for us to see. He said to them, The sinful people of this day look for something special to see. There will be nothing special to see but the powerful works of the early preacher Jonah. It's kind of an interesting way to put it. Jonah was three days and three nights in the stomach of a big fish. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the grave also. The men of the city of Nineveh, this is where it gets interesting, will stand up with the people of this day on the day men stand before God. Those men, those of Nineveh, will say, These people are guilty because the men of Nineveh were sorry for their sins 
and turned from, when, from them when Jonah preached. And see, someone greater than Jonah is here. Notice the distinction. The men of Nineveh were sorry. Jonah wasn't. Yet his message got through and God used it. But he's saying the men of Nineveh, those sinful, awful enemies of yours, will stand there on that day when men stand before God and say, you're guilty because you're not sorry. You try to do the right thing. You try to follow the law. You try to keep all of these things intact so people see you as a good person. You try to say, I appreciate God because he has delivered me in this way or that. But have you actually been transformed to love his character and who he is and what he's accomplishing and love in a way that says this hope is for all people or do you like to sit up in your position of prestige and say no, 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 this is for us and we're going to use it to condemn everyone else because God favors us and not them. And let our hearts be hardened and only let the gospel or the good news or the message transform us in a way that is beneficial to us. We want the simple fix. But the reconstruction that God wants to do in our life is complete and total. Transformation. It's the same word Paul uses as that of a caterpillar to a butterfly. Complete metamorphosis. I know that technically in a butterfly there's that thin little strip in the middle there between the wings. And now you're like going, if we pull the wings off it might look like a caterpillar. So there's still a little resemblance. But the colors change. The, like, the way this whole thing works completely transforms. And that's the kind of language Paul is using when he says we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that is passive. He's not saying you need to work really hard to learn lots of stuff so you can understand stuff better so that now you have a better perspective and now you can be different. That is a passive phrase that he's using there. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Someone else will do the renewing if you will seek him and stay in his presence, if he is sweeter than life to you, if you love his ways more than your own, you can be transformed. But it is not going to be a simple fix. It's going to be a lifelong process of picking up your cross daily and following him, which means seeking his face and desiring him more than anything else. Those are the things that transform. Those are the things that make us new. I can... I can modify my behavior and still be a Pharisee. I can make a promise to God and do what I think he wants me to do, and I can still be just like Jonah. There are ways I can change direction and still be the same grumpy version of myself. But when I am constantly in God's presence, seeking his face, seeking his way, trying to understand his heart, not walking in saying, God, I want you to feel the same way about people as I do, Please be transformed into my image that I have of you and the way I would like you to be. It doesn't work like that. He's saying, come sit in my presence and I'll tell you how I feel about that person you can't stand. I'll tell you how you f- should feel about those people on the news that you've been ranting about all week. I'll tell you how you should deal with this circumstance in your life. I'll help you understand that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control may be attributes that the world would call weakness, but I will show you how they can be strength and how they will be life to the full and true joy and hope in a world that feels hopeless. But you have to trust me, let go, and love my ways. 
not just be looking out for yourself. Transformation starts with humility. The people of Nineveh put on sackcloth and fasted and took away the the things that were comfortable and pleasant for themselves to say, maybe there's hope for us yet. It starts with a step of humility saying, maybe there's hope for me yet, but I have to humble myself and allow myself to be transformed and changed by seeking his presence not just trying to find all the answers that everybody else says are important, listening to all the other voices and all the other noise that want to tell you, well, you got to do this, you got to do this, and you better stop that. By listening to God's presence, reading his word and his voice, and caring more about his heart and his way and who we know very clearly that he is, a merciful and loving God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He is still just. Exodus 34 tells us he doesn't leave sin unpunished. But he is slow to anger, a patient, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, meaning he's not giving up on you yet. And he is not throwing down condemnation yet. There is time for forgiveness, and it is more than 40 days, but I wouldn't waste another minute. Fall before him in surrender and in humility and say, I don't want to be me who has all the right answers. I want to be transformed. If you would, bow your heads. As always, in the next few moments, we're going to, here in a little bit, we're going to take communion and we're going to have more time of song and singing and response. And during that time, I'll be up here after communion if you want to pray, if you need to pray. I'm here to do that as always. Um, But just here in this moment, before we step to the table, while we have this little bit of moment, I just encourage you to take a moment of just quiet with yourself. And just simply say, God, there may be blind spots that I can't see, ways that I am still holding on to my life and I have not picked up my cross and died in this way, ways that I'm still trying to find the answers from all the other places and have not leaned on your wisdom alone, not leaned on your spirit, not trusted you in hard decisions, but tried to find my own way. Can you reveal those blind spots to me right now? Father, this morning I just know that there are plenty of moments in my life where I know that something needs to change and I don't have the strength to take action, and I just try to trudge on and say, I'll get better at it, I'll I'll work on it, I'll I'll, I'll try my best later. And Father, those things just eat at me and eat at me and eat at me and keep me in a place that is low and broken and a mess. And Father, I assume that there are many of us who deal with that same sort of thing, where we recognize some shortcomings in our life and we just excuse them away for the time being, say, someday I'll figure it out. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that transformation is not just this simple twist of a lever and everything gets better, that it is a process, an ongoing process that sometimes is painful and hard, that sometimes makes us confront hurts and hardships in our own life. Sometimes it makes us confront feelings we have about other people and need to deal, lean into for forgiveness. Father, sometimes there are moments I know we need to be able to just recognize and realize that it's okay if I'm not right. 
Father, I just pray that you would help humble us and help us to be ready to step into hard places that are uncomfortable, to be willing to put in the time and energy to walk through a process. That, Father, ultimately we would be willing to listen to your voice, and if it takes three years like it did for Paul, I pray that you would give us every bit of those three years to wrestle with you before we really dive into stuff. Or, Father, sometimes it means diving into stuff right now and trusting you through the process of transformation while we deal with those circumstances and while we walk through it. And so, Father, wherever it is you have us, wherever it is you need us, I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves and seek your face with everything we have so that we might be fully and completely yours and devoted to your kingdom and to your work. I love you. I trust you. It's the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.